This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We all depend on forecasts for guidance on everything from the weather to possible election outcomes. But research shows that many forces can interfere with the process of predicting outcomes accurately. Here to talk about those forces are Wharton Marketing Professor Barbara Mellers and Vila Satopa, who is an Assistant Professor of Technology and Operations Management at INSEAD. They've co-authored a paper on the subject titled, Bias, Information, Noise, the BIN Model of Forecasting. Barbara and Vila, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Steve. In your paper, you propose a model for determining why some forecasters and forecasting methods do better than others. You call it the BIN model, which stands for bias, information, and noise. Can you explain how, how these three elements affect predictions? Sure. Let me begin with information. And this describes how much we know about the event that we're predicting. Um, in general, the more we know about it, the more accurately we can forecast. So, for instance, suppose someone asked me to predict the occurrence of a series of future political events. If I'm entirely ignorant about this, um, I don't really follow politics, I don't follow the news, I barely understand the questions you're asking me, I would predict around 50% for these events. Now, suppose, on the other hand, I follow the news and I'm interested in the topic. My predictions would be then more informed, and hence they would be not around 50% anymore. Instead, they would start to deviate from that a little bit, right? They would start to sort of tilt in the directions of what would actually happen. Now, at the extreme case, we could think of me having some sort of a crystal ball that would allow me to see into the future. Now, this would make me perfectly informed, and hence I would predict 0 or 100% for each one of the events, depending, of course, what I see in the crystal ball. Now, this just illustrates how information can drive our predictions. Uh, it introduces variability into them that is useful because it is based on actual information. And because of that, it correlates with the outcome. Now, that's information. It is variability in the predictions that correlates with the outcome, and it is useful. Now, unfortunately, in the real world, we are not this type of rational consumers of information. Instead, there's bound to be errors in our predictions. And statistically speaking, we like to separate those errors into two different types. So we have bias and we have noise. Now, bias is a systematic error. So for instance, in this context of making predictions about political events, I might be making predictions that are systematically too high. That is, I systematically predict too high probabilities for the events to occur. This means that I have a positive bias. Now similarly, my predictions could be systematically too low. Then I have a negative bias. Now that is bias. The key here is to understand that bias is systematic. And because of that, we should be able to predict the direction and magnitude of bias in the forecaster's next prediction. Now noise, on the other hand, is a very different type of creature. Um, it is not systematic. In fact, it is a non-systematic error that randomly increases or decreases uh, my prediction. So for instance, for one event, my prediction may become randomly too high. Uh, for another event, it might suddenly become too low. The idea here is that no matter how much we know about the forecaster, it is impossible for us to predict the exact direction and magnitude of noise. Now, this also introduces variability into the predictions. But contrast to information, this variability is not based on any actual relevant information about the outcome. Therefore, it is not useful, and hence it does not correlate with the outcome. So let me just quickly sum that up. 
uh, we have information and noise that define the variability in the predictions. Information is variability that correlates with the outcome. Noise does not. And bias then is a systematic over or underestimation of the predictions. Barbara, do you have anything to add to that? Well, I think um, bias is what we've studied in the judgment and decision-making literature. It's something you can see and you can do something about it. Whereas noise is invisible and very difficult to predict. Um, I think that's why we haven't focused on it in, okay. in, the, in the science as much as bias. Right. I was going to ask that, you know, it seems, in your paper you actually mentioned that we know very little about noise compared to bias. That's right. We, we haven't focused on it. The, um, back in the 1970s, uh, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky started a program of research that's called Heuristics and Biases. And they got everyone excited about studying bias um, in not just in statistical terms, the way um, Villa was uh, describing it, but also in psychological terms, like stereotyping people or like um, being too optimistic uh, and overconfident about about our skills or our abilities. Um, and uh, actually now Danny Kahneman's in the process of writing a new book on noise. And... Um, Let's say he's getting people very excited about about reducing and tamping down noise in human judgment. And it's his view, and I think our research supports it, that noise may be a much bigger factor than bias in the in our desire to improve human judgment. Okay. Well, let's let's back up for just a second and clarify some terminology that yeah. might come up in terms of um, forecasting. What is a super forecaster? Ah, the term came from uh, the previous forecasting tournament that we participated in. Uh, it was IARPA sponsored and um, went on for four years. Um, there were hundreds of forecasting questions that we asked people during that time period, thousands of forecasters who were involved, and over a million forecasts were made. Um, each year, at the end of each year, we calculated everyone's accuracy score and then took the top 2% of forecasters in each of the various conditions that we had created. And um, so these were people who had done super well relative to the thousands of other people involved. And um, none of them objected to the title. They all were happy with the, with the uh, label of super forecasters. They put it on their Vetas. Sure. Um, and uh, so we, keep, we, we kept adding to that group at the end of each year, taking the top 2% again. And um, so it's relatively large now in the hundreds. And uh, believe it or not, um, super forecasters get together every so often in Boston and New York and San Francisco and all over the place. Um, they have become good friends, many of them, and uh, it's it's kind of a club now, I think. Well, something that I think sometimes confuses people about forecasting as well, and Vila, you made reference to this when you were talking, uh, a correct re a correct 
uh, prediction is either a zero or a hundred, correct? But everything else in between is a maybe, right? So in other words, if someone guesses 50%, that's a maybe, 30%, that's a maybe, right? So there's no way to sort of, I, I think in between, I think we think anything that's, that's not perfect prediction is a bad prediction. Is that true? No, the way I see this is that um, you're absolutely right that ideally we would have predictions of zero or 100 because those are sort of absolute claims. And now if you were accurate, we would know exactly what was going to happen. But in the real world, this is rarely the case. We only know so much. There's always some sort of irreducible uncertainty that we cannot harness and that will leave us some uncertainty. Now, a forecaster who gives probabilistic predictions somewhere between zero and one can also be extremely good. And these kind of forecasters, we call them calibrated. So this means that when you give a probabilistic prediction, your prediction actually can be interpreted in a way that we typically like to think about probabilities. So for instance, suppose you make a prediction that says this event is going to happen with 30% accuracy. Now, what do we think about that? That means that if we could somehow simulate, say, 100 worlds, right? In those 100, 30 times the event would actually happen if you were calibrated, if you were a good forecaster. So this is something we can actually test. If you make a lot of predictions on different types of events over time, we can start checking a little bit how calibrated are your predictions. Are they actually mm -hmm. matching with the empirical frequencies that we observe in practice? So even if it doesn't come true, it's not necessarily a bad prediction? Um, no. No, right. not necessarily. No. Well, there, with probability, there's only two ways to be wrong. And that's if you say zero and the event occurs, or if you say 100% and the event doesn't occur. All else is in the gray zone. Although we often talk as though a prediction is wrong if it falls on the wrong side of maybe. And um, so pollsters who said Hillary was going to win with probability 70% um, were, were viewed as making an incorrect forecast. Well, that's there's shades of gray here. And someone who made a 90% prediction that Hillary would win is more wrong than someone who made a 70% prediction. So, but people don't treat predictions that way. They like to view them as right or wrong. Anything on the wrong side of maybe is wrong, but that's not quite right. It's, it's more subtle than that. Okay. Well, so, so getting back into some of the nuts and bolts of your research here, uh, the data you looked at is from a multi-year geopolitical uh, forecasting tournament, which, you, right. which you mentioned. A and you applied three experimental interventions in your research. Can you tell us what those were? Sure. We created uh, an intervention that we did not expect would have any good effects. Um, it was a training module to... Treat people, teach people a, a little bit about how to think about probabilities, uh, a little bit of advice about where to get information, probabilistic information, prediction markets, um, polling companies. Um, we told them to average forecasts, professional forecasts, if they had more than one. And then we gave them just a small um, a uh, little section on what the common biases are in human judgment and what you should avoid. And basically, we said, um, look out for overconfidence. Many people are overconfident, and you might 
you might be as well. Um, that's a bias, known bias. And watch for the confirmation bias, which is a systematic tendency to look for and pay attention to information that's consistent with our beliefs. So we should try to think about why you're wrong. Um, uh, you know, ask yourself what ways you, you may have um, misinterpreted the question or uh, forgotten to look for certain kinds of information and so forth. Okay, probability training. Next comes teaming. We made bets among ourselves about what would work best. Should forecasters be in groups and have the option of talking to each other if they want to, say groups of 10 to, to 15? Or should they work alone? And the, the strongest argument for working alone is a statistical one. It's the notion of pooling independent judgments can often give you a more accurate estimate of something or a probability than um, people who talk first and then average the, uh, the correlated judgments. So it turned out that the, um, the groups that, that worked in teams um, had much better opportunities to share information. Um, and they, felt, they started feeling responsible for each other, so uh, they didn't want to disappoint each other. They gently corrected each other's errors if somebody said, 20% and it sounded like they meant 80%, somebody might say, oh, maybe you flipped the, uh, the scale there and you didn't want to. They um, motivated each other. Hey, Joe, how come we haven't heard from you in the last couple of days, blah, blah, blah. Does being on a team help to reduce bias as well? Yes, it did. Villa, do you want to bring that up? It did. Um, it did reduce bias. Uh, but not as much as it reduced the noise. Okay. Interesting. And then the, you had a third And the third one yeah. was, is what we call tracking of talent. And that refers to the pooling. It, it's like tracking in, in schools. The pooling of children, say, in, in the school context with similar abilities. Now, this is a controversial topic, and uh, usually the controversy is down at the lower end. Should you pull kids with lower abilities and, and not have them exposed to kids with higher abilities? But there is not a lot of controversy about the higher end. And, and here we're in a case where we're putting together the people who, who uh, have the greatest skill and um, letting them work together. And it just, you know, it was as if we put them all on steroids. They suddenly just shot up in terms of effort and... Um, um, they really uh, respected their uh, teammates and um, wanted to do a good job for themselves and for the, for the others. Uh, now, you you've both sort of mentioned that in uh, you know with these interventions, uh, maybe the surprising element is that um, noise was the biggest factor that was impacting the accuracy of predictions. Can you talk a little bit about that and also why this was surprising to you? Um. I guess we found it surprising because going back to the original Good Judgment Project research, a lot of these interventions were designed 
to tackle bias. And going back to what Barb was saying about the history behind or the research done by Danny Kahneman and Tversky, there's been a very high focus on the research on bias, right? And what we discovered here was that, uh, in fact, bias was not the dominant driver. In fact, noise reduction was the dominant driver. And the way we did this, and I kind of want to go back a little bit to the super forecasters. So the reason why it's so handy to have super forecasters is that they are, in some sense, like an elite squad of forecasters. They represent, to some extent, what is humanly possible in this context, right? So they created a very ideal benchmark against which we can compare other groups and see how could we improve those groups to make them more like the supers, right? And this is how we did the comparison. And what we found out as a simple rule of thumb is that about 50% of the accuracy improvements that we saw going from the regulars to the supers can be attributed to noise reduction. And then the remaining 25% to information improvement, meaning that they have more information, and the last 25 will be then bias reduction. So 50% to noise, quarter to information, and remaining quarter to bias. And this was not quite what we expected to see when we went into this. But now it's jumping up all the time, no matter how we turn the data. We're also um, looking at this from a dynamic perspective now. Um, we're, we're analyzing what contributes to um, forecasting um, or accuracy scores uh, 60 days out and then on up to one day before the, the event occurred. And it changes somewhat. So there's more bias in the judgments further out and less noise. And then that flips as, as we get closer to the outcome. Information increases. Does noise increase? No, noise stays about the same and bias decreases. Yes, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, I think the contribution of the model is that you can ask yourselves, is your intervention, which you think was designed to reduce bias, doing that? Or should you redesign your intervention to really reduce bias or reduce noise or increase information, whatever? But you can check yourself. Is the key takeaway that you really need to watch out for noise, though? In, the, in this process? Is that, is that something that yeah, you'd it's, say? It's a much bigger factor than I think most of us realized. The way to get rid of noise, there is a way, and it's to use an algorithm. To completely pull the human out of the loop because we are not necessarily reliable. We have a headache. We, we make di- judgments at different times. We, we're in different moods. We, we argue with our spouses. We this, that, we're distracted. And so we don't give the same judgment to the same set of, of information on multiple occasions. An algorithm will do that in a second. And, um, we don't necessarily discriminate between stimulus information that differs think information that should receive different judgments um, for all the same reasons that were not in cons- not necessarily consistent. So um, that's the way to get rid of noise, to take the human out of the loop. But that isn't something most people want to see. Um, Is there a danger in going too far in, to, in that direction in terms of predictions? 
how would you feel if an algorithm decided um, whether or not you should be charged with a crime? Whether an algorithm decided whether or not you had cancer. Now, actually, I think for many of these cases, it's well known that the algorithms do much better than people. Um, uh, I was just reading Malcolm Gladwell's new, new book, Talking to Strangers, and he tells the story of, of a guy who, uh, a judge in Chicago who sets bail. He liked to look into the eyes of the, the individual who's involved and... Uh, Turned out that wasn't as valuable as a sort of assorted other information that you can derive from machine learning uh, algorithms, so forth. Wow! And um, just wanted to add to that a little mm. bit is that there is also a challenge with the current technology. Maybe in the future this will change, but as of today, it is still quite challenging to train machines to make predictions on these kind of very complex, the almost unique-like events that we're dealing with in the Good Judgment Project. So, for instance, I don't know, imagine training a model to predict whether Brexit is actually going to happen by the end of this year or, uh, I don't know, uh, whether there's going to be some big breakthrough in some emerging technology like quantum computing by a certain year. Like These are questions that are very non-seen. Uh, we haven't seen anything like this before. So it's difficult to train machines to predict these kind of events. Uh, but humans, on the other hand, can make these kind of predictions, but unfortunately, they, they turn out to be quite noisy. Now, to add a little bit more on that is that this doesn't mean that we cannot have machines and humans act, work together to come up with even more powerful predictions for these kind of complex events. So one thing that we have looked at and what you certainly can do is to look at past predictions made by people on events that we already know what happened, and then you can train a machine on those predictions themselves. And then the machines can learn patterns in the human predictions, right? Now I have a trained model. And when I go into a new future event and try to forecast that, I ask a bunch of people. And then I will input those predictions into my machine learning model. What pops out will be a prediction that can have less noise, less bias, uh, and be more accurate. Um, or at the other end, what Barb was saying, we can use machines also to combine multiple predictions in a very powerful way to come with these kind of consensus predictions that are less biased and less noisy or even more informed than any one of the individuals in the group. Right? So this is something we can do to let the machines work together with the humans. Oh. Hybrid. That's, that's, I think, the, the way we'll be, go we'll be headed in the future. Right. Well, if, and if the goal is... Um based on your model, to reduce noise as much as possible. Is there any downside to reducing noise too much? Can that go to an extreme as well? From a theoretical perspective, at least, there isn't. If you look at a noisy forecaster, on a single event, it might be that a noisy forecaster gets lucky and gets really accurate. But if we follow a noisy forecaster in the long run for over many, many events, they will be less accurate than another forecaster who is less noisy. So from the accuracy perspective, having less noise is beneficial in the long run. But I want to just bring up here something a little bit different because it's not all about accuracy. Oftentimes, these predictions are then input into some sort of a decision-making process. Right? It's not the forecaster who is ultimately making the decision. Instead, they are acting almost like a consultant to somebody else. Now, if you have a forecaster who is very low on bias, very low on noise, they're predictions are much more interpretable. And this goes back to what we were talking about, this idea of calibration in the very beginning. So if a forecaster like this says that this event is going to happen 80% of the time, 
we know what that means. That is a probability. I understand how that works, right? I can trust it and make a decision now. But suppose now this forecaster is very noisy. Suddenly we don't know what that means anymore. It's not a probability the way we usually think about probabilities. It's not reliable. And because of that, it's difficult to make decisions based on very noisy predictions. So there's that side to that as well. I completely agree with Villa that from a theoretical perspective, no noise is good noise, you know. But um, again, it's, it's, these are societal questions of how we want to make decisions and judgments. Um, we're, we're pretty bad at forecasting. We're pretty bad at predicting the future. We, there are numerous studies showing how poorly eyewitness testimonies are and how poorly we forecast our pleasure in, uh, in the future with uh, choosing this house or this job or what have you. Um, we're, there's lots of room for, for, for improvement here. Um, and there's an interesting thing, I think, that, that goes on. We, we find prediction really hard but we find explanation fairly easy. As soon as an event occurs, I've got an explanation for it, and it just comes naturally. Um, I don't get a job at some university. I say, oh, well, they're biased. They must be biased against women or some such thing, and I've got you know, a complex, intricate story about, about the evil intentions of, of all, all everyone involved. I think that we ought to put this all in perspective and and focus on what we can do to improve human judgments. It will, we'll see greater fairness. We'll see greater equity if that's that's what we want. We'll see lots of things getting better from noise reduction. And um, and so I'm happy to be working on this problem and. Trying to trying to tamp down noise with Villa, it's been it's been a, a great research project. Great. So if um, so if the, you know along those lines, what do you think would be the next inquiry or the next thing to explore in this area or to look into? So, I, mean, there, I think there's a lot of things we could do from here because um, it really opens up a much more detailed view into different interventions, forecasting accuracy, performance. Uh, but one thing uh, I wanted to mention here, which is something that we just recently discussed, is that um, in this paper, we are almost entirely focusing on how these interventions improve individual forecasters in terms of their bias, noise, and information. But like has been mentioned many times now, oftentimes when we make decisions, we don't do that based on a single forecaster's opinion. Instead, we will consult a lot of different experts. And now what we need to do then is to have all these, this group of experts somehow come to a consensus that we then will input into our decision making. Now, there's many different ways we could do this. Uh, probably the most natural way is to have all these experts in their single room, let them discuss, share ideas, and come up with some sort of a consensus. Now, another idea is um, this idea of aggregation, which Barb mentioned earlier on. The idea that I will actually ask each one of the experts individually for their predictions and then I will combine these predictions with some sort of a mathematical tool like averaging. 
or we could go and use something even more involved like a prediction market. Now, these are all different ways to harness sort of the wisdom of the crowd, right? Now, we know and the literature says that these do help to improve accuracy, but exactly how do they do it? Uh, do they tamp down noise? Do they just reduce bias? Or do they actually just find the little bits of pieces of information that is scattered around all the experts and combine that somehow? We don't really know, right? And this is a fantastic application for the BIN model to come and answer these questions. We could do this, right? We could apply the BIN model to these kind of methods and then understand them in a much more detailed manner. And once we have that understanding, I think this is a next step to make progress in developing other methods that are even more powerful in harnessing the wisdom of the crowd. Or, and I should say not, or... um, we could send out requests for all existing data from our from our internet friends and um, reanalyze predictions, human predictions, using the BIN model to see what exactly is wrong with, say, economic forecasts from experts or uh, stock predictions or um, disease predictions and so forth. And... Um, we, we, you know, we could even do it with, with, with algorithms to see what, what the remaining variability consists of. So there's a lot of ways, I think, that we could build on this. Yeah. Well, well, Barbara and Vila, thanks very much for talking about your work with me today. Thank you. Thanks a lot. And if you like what you heard, uh, you can find more content just like this on knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. And you can also find us on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.